Starting a company is easy. Growing a company is harder. But selling your company? That's a whole different story. In The Big Exit Show, we lift the curtain of secrecy around selling businesses by learning from ambitious and successful founders who have been on this roller coaster. Our hosts, venture capital investors Johan von Mill, the founding and managing partner of Peep, and Anke Hauskis, the founding and managing partner of NP Hart, will help you on this exciting journey. Hey, Anke, we just had a great interview, a great talk with Robin, who sold his uh, company Insight to, to Gainsight. And I think he shared some great learnings, especially about the 10 year journey it took him to, to build this company. Yeah, I love how he was so transparent in what he thinks is important with building a company, but also to get to that point where you basically have different options, what to do next and why he chose and what he took into account with making that decision to in the end sell his company. So uh, yeah, an incredible story. Yeah. And also what I found also remarkable how he shared, let's say, his personal endeavors, right? Also his emotions, what he had when the company was not going so well, when he walked back from, let's say, the negotiation table and what it did, did to him uh, from a personal level and also how he yeah. dealt with that. No, and I love when people are so authentic about what they what it did to them uh, and how you show up as a leader. I think taking the pride of making certain decisions that might not be the most uh, favorable or like easy ones, but in the end, like a huge impact in the direction of the company and also in the end, how much money they got from the company. But at the same time, also like being honest and open about that coming home and having real talks with your loved ones. I think personally, a lot when people are so open, you want the good guys to win and he clearly comes across as a good yeah. guy and a very yeah. authentic leader. Yeah. So let's listen. Starting a company is easy. Growing is harder, but especially exiting a company, that's really hard. And that's why we started the big exit show where we talk to founders who successfully sold their company. And your host is Anke Huispus, partner and founder of MP Hart, and myself, Johan Vermeil, partner and founder of Peak. And today we have a special guest in this episode. Today we have a guest from Amsterdam called Robin van Lieshout. And he started a community software company after, let's say, taking his first steps on the entrepreneurial career with I think a more publishing company. And after 10 years, he exited and sold to Gainsight, the US biggest company, I think, on this space. So welcome, Robin. And we would really love to hear your story and especially how you started the company. Where did, the, let's say, the first idea came from? Yes, thanks for having me. So basically, I started my first entrepreneurial journey, you know, coming from like a hobby project. So I started this online website, blogging, talking about consumer electronics. And that site basically grew to about 5 million unique visitors a month. So it's, you know, quite big. And we started selling advertisements and affiliate doing affiliate deals on those on those sites and actually turned out to be you know a pretty good business and one of our advertisers was t-mobile and they were the first one in the netherlands who were going to sell an iphone and they asked to us hey you know we're spending all that cash you know on that independent portal you created but could you also create some kind of white label version for ourselves to use on our own website basically so you know kind of like a white label, you know, community solution. And we were thinking, hey, that's actually a good idea. So we sold the first company, the publishing business and started, you know, this SaaS journey, you know, rolling into enterprise software where community and T-Mobile was basically our, our first customer. Cool. I was wondering when you're talking about we, is that the same founder that you started a new company with and how did you get to know each other? I read somewhere that it was also like you having a knee surgery, you sat down for a few weeks. Is that the, during the same period? Yeah, that's a good question. So basically my first company, so the independent publishing company, I started basically because I was home recovering from a knee surgery. So there was nothing to do, you know, the first weeks I watched television, but you know, I got quite bored, you know, after two weeks or so. So I decided to start using the computer more and started to learn myself programming skills. Mm. And it worked out pretty, pretty, pretty good choice. So I created the first version of that website myself. And that grew to like big side with 5 million unique visitors. So that was the first journey. And simultaneously, I got to know an, another person, you know, who happened to be, you know, in the end, a good friend, Wouter. And he also created this online website around electronics and mobile phones. And then at this, you know, at one time we said, hey, why not just join forces? So in my second company, so inside it, we basically said, hey, let's just do this together. So he also sold his publishing company. I sold my publishing company and we joined forces and created inside it. 
And what did you do before the two of you decided to do this wasn't as easy as we worked on something similar in the past? Or nowadays you've got these like interview questions, 50 questions that you have to ask each other before you join this path. Like how did you know you were a good match? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, obviously we knew each other already for a few years because we were already sharing, you know, thoughts and experiences and observations, you know, in this independent publishing, you know, business, you know, so we were already sharing tips and tricks on, you know, how can you create money, you know, from, from website traffic, you know, what are the be best advertisers, you know, how can you scale this to, you know, to international levels? We were sharing even some, you know, small code language snippets, stuff we created basically on our sites. So we already knew each other for, for a few years, just as friends, just as, as, as colleagues, basically in this space. And then in the end, we said, hey, you know, maybe we should just do something together. And that turned out to be a good choice. Hmm. And there's often a lot of debate, Robert, not to start companies with your friends. In this case, you did it, right? And you, I think you met first professional, right? But also you were friends. How, how is it like, what's your, let's say, what's, a, what's your learning on that, what you can share with the listeners? Yeah, well, I think, I think, you know, What's the definition of a friend, right? I mean, me and Wouter, we didn't grow up together or so, and we didn't study together, you know, for 10 you know, years plus or so. Like, you know, I also have a group of friends who have been doing that with. I probably would never start a company with those, <laughs> with those friends, basically. But me and Wouter, we kind of collaborated, you know, starting, you know, more from a, from a professional angle. And then from that angle became friends and hang out and we had dinner every week and stuff like that. So I think there's, it's probably a different bucket of friends, I would say. Then again, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, give the advice to other founders to start something with your closest friends. But I think with Wouter, it turned out to be a good match. And I think it's also good that you know each other a little bit better because then you're also more receptive to feedback, you know, from each other. You have a you know, better trust relationship. And, you know, as you know, a lot of you know, startups fail because of the co-founder dynamics. Luckily, we, you know, we had a, we had a good journey together. What's the biggest difference that you had in view with your founder? Because he left at a certain point, right? You took the company forward and especially you raised funding pretty late. I think we're also going to dive into that topic also. But what was the biggest difference between the two of you, especially in how you handle things and how you, let's say, how you ran the company? Yeah. So I think, you know, we both have a super entrepreneurial, agile mindset mentality, but we come from a different point of view. So I have more or the business orientation, right? More in sales or marketing and commercial and strategy. And he has more like a product view, right? Running product and engineering and design and stuff like that. So I think we really were complementary, I would say, in terms of skill sets. So I think that that really helped. At one point, you know, in our 10 year journey, you know, Wouter decided, you know, I want to do something else. I want to start something all over again, which he did. He founded, you know, multiple companies, you know, after Inside It. And I think for him, it was just like, hey, we, you know, we got this company to a certain stage. I love it, but I don't want to take it any further. It's become maybe a little bit too big. I need to manage people, all of these things, you know, the traditional, you know, things you have when scaling a company. And he was more like, no, I want to be, you know, with a smaller team, being more agile and be a founder of a new company again, which he successfully did afterwards. And how was it for you to miss your partner in crime? And of course, by that time you had a bigger executive team, but, uh, was it pretty, did you take it pretty lightly or was it a bumpy moment in the, in the journey? Yeah, for us, actually, we, we separated between quotes, you know, pretty, pretty well, actually. In fact, you know, a lot of things didn't change. I still, you know, connected with him a lot. We still had dinner like almost every week or so. You know, we were still discussing and debating, you know, inside it. So we really left, you know, in really good terms, I would say. He was just not active operationally anymore inside the organization, but it didn't prevent us from just, you know, chatting and strategizing about the overall company. And at one point I also saw that he just, you know, had a little bit less energy at the end. So I think it was also just good for him to move on and do something else. And I think everybody saw that, including me. So I think it was also just the most logical choice for the organization. Yeah. I think this should be something that people should also talk more about, like the way people can separate. I think uh, we also discussed in the previous podcast where there was a split up, but I, I think like one out of three or one out of four companies, they have a founder split up. Sometimes it can be a very hairy journey. And in other ways, I think um, the way the two of you figured out how to find a new working uh, relationship is a great example. I think uh want to have different things in their um, journey. Definitely. Um, Maybe something for the big generation show. Yeah, 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 maybe. <laughs> but, uh, 
And I guess also, like, in the preparation for this podcast, Joel uh, and I read a few of your interviews, we listened to a few of your podcasts, and my point of view is also, you seem to be something that, like, uh, and you also mentioned, right, like, company culture, you initially already hired, like, chief vibes officer, I saw somewhere that you did the, what is it, the Gallup Strength Finder test, so it also seems that you're really aware of the personality besides, like, running a company together. Can you tell us more about um, that side of growing a company? 100%. Yeah, so we we invested, I think, a lot in, in culture and team dynamics, I would say, from day one. So we hired this person called Vibe Manager, and in our company, she's still with the company today. She's done a lot, you know, internally, you know, you know not just like organizing events, but also, you know, codifying our core values, you know, hosting these core value events, meetups, brainstorm sessions about how can we improve our organization, how can we build trust among teams. Everybody, you know, in our organization did the strength finder test. So, you know, we had sessions, you know, in each individual team about each other's strengths and how can you collaborate, you know, in a better way. In the executive team, we had like quarterly offsites, like two or three days on a, in a location somewhere in the Netherlands, but without any, you know, internet or funds, but just, you know, strategizing together, but also getting to know each other in a good way. So we invested quite a lot in, in, just, in, in just the fundamentals, I would say, the building blocks of, of a successful organization. And yeah, that, that worked out pretty well between me and my co-founder, but also you know, between me and the exec team and also you know, in every single individual team. What was the reason, Robin, to, to spend so much time and, and effort on that, right? Because a lot of founders, and especially early on founders, I mean, 10 years ago, it was a long time ago. But it was the reason that you that you spent so much time in it, was because you normally don't see that with founders indeed in this phase. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the early things you do in a startup is probably related to your own DNA, right? The the startup DNA, the founders DNA. And I think me and Wouter, you know, we already were a little bit like this, right? And if I speak, you know, for me personally, you know, coming from Brabant, you know, which has like already, you know, this this little bit more relaxed energy and vibe and. Uh, I think we we just and I just brought that to the entire organization, making sure that you know that it was also just fun to work you know in the organization. You know you know we used to call it like work hard, play hard, right? I think that statement has kind of evolved over the year or so. But that's that was basically the you know operated the company. So I can still remember, for example, you know Friday afternoon, like four or five five p.m. or so, I told everybody, hey, now we should go to the bar and have drinks together. And if people would still be in their desk or to leave, maybe go home, or I said, no, 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 no. This is also just part of part of the job, basically. You should come and have a beer with us and, and close off the week and you know share some war stories. And that was just the default mode of how we operated this company. Cool, good to hear. And then something changed, right, after six years, because then you decided to, to raise capital, right? And not from one investor, but from three investors. So I want to dive into that a little bit later. Why the three? But what 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 happened? And especially the way that how you ran your company, right? Because that's the bootstrap phase where you fully are, let's say, independent and do fully do it your way. And then you have three, let's say, experienced investors also joining your board and probably also have their own views on how to run your company. What a change for you also as a founder. For sure. Yeah. So at one point, you know, we were doing about three million bucks in AR, right? So a yeah, pretty sizable company without any external investors. We, as founders, you know, we basically did our own, you know, seed round, you could say, all right? So after after 3 million bucks, we said, hey, let's scale this company, you know, faster, quicker, more international. You know, we were selling to many different industries. We had our first initial sales a little bit in Belgium. Maybe we had like one or two customers in the rest of Europe. And we really thought, hey, this could be like a big horizontal product serving multiple markets, multiple geographies. And we also wanted to start in the US, right? And every founder knows it's not easy, you know, to start in the US. You need a lot of capital, you know, salaries are higher, you know, cost structure is, is just higher. So we wanted to add a little bit more investment opportunities basically to the to the organization and then decided to to go for our for our series a round and what mainly changed for you at that time robin from let's say being the bootstrap company and also being a funded company what was let's say the personal change for you also in your role and how you let's say acted as a ceo yeah so i think being a bootstrap founder you know you can decide everything by yourself there is no real accountability right maybe apart from towards your co-founders you know which you know you all know well and you know, have a good relationship, but but not maybe, you know, the edge, you know, which you maybe have with like, you know, a venture capital investor. So it was, you know, it was 
getting, it was maybe easy even, you know, being a bootstrap founder. And then after, you know, we raised our funding, you know, things changed, you know, we had like an official board, you know, we tried to hire some independent uh, board members even. We had like monthly calls where I had to, you know, go over the numbers, which I wasn't used to, right? Then we had our quarterly board meetings where we would talk about strategy, need a lot of preparation. I was like, hey, you know, do I really need to prepare for these things? I'm just running this company. Why do these people want to know all these things, right? So it really changed a little bit the dynamic, but also my own accountability. Uh, and in the end, I really was looking forward to, to actually to most of these board meetings because it also offered me a way to reflect and think a little bit more strategically, step out a little bit, get some external perspectives, maybe not all valid, right? I mean, not everything a VC is saying is the 100% the truth, which is fine, but it at least, you know, gave you the opportunity to reflect and think about these things in a, in a different way. So I think for me, it was really a positive change. And maybe to hone on in on a little bit because you spend so much time bootstrapping and also for VCs listening to this podcast, including me, what are the two or three main things that you really got out of um, having a board or these VCs at the table besides like the accountability of getting your numbers in place and the priority straight every month or so? Yeah. So let me give you one concrete example, maybe also to show that, you know, a startup is not always going in the right direction. I think a year after our funding round, we basically crashed as an organization. You know, we were expecting to do a lot of sales internationally. We hired a lot of salespeople all across Europe, but you know, results were not there. We were basically too ambitious in our, in our overall growth plan. So our burn rate was pretty high. So we got together with our investors and what they did, they really pushed on, Hey, this is not going, this is not going to work. You know, if you continue like this, you know, you'll burn too much capital. If, you know, in the end you do find something, you don't have enough capital again to do that rebound or invest more in stuff, which is working. So you need to cut burn. You need to basically, you know, reduce the amount of headcount you have in your organization. And I think as a founder, I was actually not ready, right? And I was actually pretty mad after that board meeting. I was like, you know, who are they, right? Why are they saying this to me? It's my company. I want to make my own decisions. But they were really pushing on it, really pushing on it. Almost, you know, that we were basically shouting to each other right in the room. And I think that was one of the most valuable moments, you know, our investors had. Because I was not ready. They saw it from a different perspective, outside in perspective, and they were right, right? So after a week or so, when I, you know, let it all in and soaked it all in, I was like, okay, let's, let's, let's think about it a little bit more. I got together with the exec team and said, hey, you know what? These guys are actually right. So we made a plan to restructure the business. Unfortunately, we had to let go of some folks, but it helped us basically set us up for success for the next step, you know, in our journey. And I think it's thanks to our investors who, who basically pushed for that in that board meeting. So that was a real big value add. Yeah. So it's basically also like getting or having that uncomfortable conversations. So often, like, especially angels think like, uh, I want to be their biggest cheerleader, but it's also having the conversation that you have to have, but it's, you know, it's, it's not going to be a, a fun outcome maybe. And how was that for you? So you said you took a, a week uh, to reflect, to dive into the numbers. Did you seek out feedback from other founders or was it really between you and the investors and some internal reflection? Yeah, it's funny. If I would do it again, I would definitely seek for more advice from other CEOs. But I think back then there was not like a huge support group, a huge peer group of CEOs. You know, this was like, you know, five, six, seven years ago or so. I think things have changed. There are more communities now in the Netherlands, you know, supporting CEOs. So that, that's really helpful. So for me, it was more like acceptance of that meeting mm -hmm. and acceptance of, of the truth, I would say. That has led me to accept that, that we just need to go into this direction. Yeah, because now, now these days, as you probably know, Robert, that the burn multiple, I think, is the most used phrase, I think, now in board meetings, right? What's the amount of revenue that you're adding compared, let's say, to the cost level? Those days, because you raised funding in 2016, so the year after is roughly 2017, the burn multiple, I think, didn't exist at that time. How could you also, as a founder, right, could know this at that time, looking backwards? But what, what, where did, let's say, very specifically help your investor in? What kind of in insights did they give you? At Around the burn multiple, multiple or in a broader scale? In a broader scale, indeed. Sorry. How did they help you yeah. to realize that the burn was too high according to the cost level, right? Because I think that's typically what an investor should do, right? To guide you also during these, this kind of, that kind of KPIs. But how did, how could you have seen this yourself, right? Also as a founder, also to learn from. Yeah. What I've learned over the, 
over the last few years is that there is a fine balance between being super optimistic about the business, right? And, and being super passionate and say, okay, we're going to conquer the world. And, you know, this is going to be a unicorn and you have to have that also to your team, basically to everybody because it's, it's difficult, right? So you need to set the stage and, and drive that ambition on one side, but also being super honest and realistic to yourself about where are you now, right? Because yes, we can all, you know, project that hockey stick, you know, in, in next year's budget, but it, you know, it hardly happens, right? So also just be super realistic where you are in terms of competition, in terms of your product, in terms of your people, you know, do you have people who are already making quota or not? Can you scale lead generation? Do you have the signals for that or not? Is, is your development team cracking out new features functionality in, in a decent pace? Or do you have a lot of technical debt, which you first need to solve? Do you have that go-to-market fit already? Or is it still juggling for every single individual deal and there's no repeatability at all? Right? So all of these signals, you know, and be really honest to yourself, I would say, that that's you know, aligns with that balance. And I think your investors can really help with that because they've seen other companies, right? And that's also what they did with us, you know, and they, you know, could say, hey, you know, I really love your passion and you need that in order to do this. But on this specific level, like, you know, repeatability in sales, you're not there. There's no repeatability from, you know, MQL to SQL to opportunity, win rate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's really helpful to see and understand and get some perspective on. And we'll talk about the highlights position in a little bit, but I want to ask one more thing about this low light, I guess, in the journey when you had to go back to the team and let people go. I remember when I was working at one of the companies in San Francisco in the US, like you can get let go like the day after. And I remember so vividly having an all hands meeting. And then the same day, the people who had to let go had to go to HR. And then a few hours later, left the building with their boxes and their belongings. And to me, that was so shocking coming uh, from Europe. How was that moment for you to do the all hands? In one hand, like let some of the people go and the other hand, like be the cheerleader of the rest and keep them together, especially because culture is such an important thing in the way you build your company. You know, to be honest, the, the day we had to do the layoff was probably one of the most difficult days in my entire journey, you know, as a CEO founder. Uh, to the moment I basically, you know, almost had to cry myself, basically. Luckily, you know, I prepared, you know, a lot and, and did the story in my head. You know, I was a little bit in, in an acceptance state already, but it's one of the most difficult things you can do with people you hired yourself and then have to say to the organization, hey, there is no room for you anymore. And it also feels, you know, like personal failure, right? Because you are the founder, you had the ambition to grow. You set out like a path, a North Star, a vision. You hired people for that. And they rely on you, on your vision. And if that doesn't materialize, you know, then, you know, I, I had to look at myself. Say, did I really make that, that right choice? Right? Did, I, did I make the right investment decisions? Did I hire the right amount of people? So it was really tough, specifically on myself, that I had the feeling, you know, I just didn't do well. Uh, I did know that this was, at this moment in time, the best decision for the company because you know, the company needed to survive, go further. We had to re-strategize. So there was no doubt about that this wasn't the right choice kind of felt like a failure, definitely. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast just about that topic, I guess. But for now, like, because uh, probably still a lot of companies have to go through a rip in the coming months. What would you tell those who have that big decision laying in front of them? And especially on like, for the people who stay, how do you, because all they all have emotions. They have to let go of their um, colleague friends. What would be your recommendation to um, after the big news came to build up that team again? Definitely. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things you should not forget is that after you do a riff, um, you need to keep the company a great place to work for those who are still there, right? Basically the survivors, you know, those are the folks, you know, who you need for the, for the next step in, you know, in your journey. And it's really important to think about that. So of course, that includes great communication, right? So why are we doing this? What are the next steps? What is, the, what is the vision going forward? It requires great communication to the people who are leaving, right? Because the people who are staying, they will look at that and they will look at how you treat those people, right? So that's super important. And then we need to make sure that remaining company, that there's basically a good you know, quality of life, 
right? That the people who, who are still with the company, that it's a viable company. So, you know, can they still expect raises, right? Is there still travel budget? You know, can we still do internal events? Can we still have our Friday afternoon drinks, right? Is there enough supporting resource or did we cut everybody um, who needed to support the existing team and now everybody's like swamped with work, right? So focus on communication and focus on making sure that everybody who is still there, that their quality of life in the organization is still in, the, in a decent shape. And about, Robert, what's your experience? Because I think this topic is now on the table in a lot of companies. And what I see myself a lot with founders is that they, it's hard to cut in your own flesh, right? It's hard to say goodbye to people who you eventually hired. So I see founders also who are, let's say, a little bit reluctant on this and really want to use the, the shave and do say goodbye to a few people hope it discovers and then eventually if it's not needed to say goodbye to some other people right or to cut that's the second group to cut deeply at once what's your experience also in that what's the right right approach especially if you look forward also in the company to what you want to build up again yeah so in my opinion there's only one right approach and that's to cut only once because this process is already super painful for the people involved but also for the people who are still there and for yourself, so just make a plan, cut a little bit deeper than you initially thought, because then you have some 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 room basically for additional expenses or things which go wrong, or that drinks, or that party, or offside, or whatever, basically. But I would do it once, and I would do it, you know, as deep as you most comfortably feel and happy with. But that's that would definitely be my recommendation. If you do it the other way around, people will be constantly living in a fear mode, right? Okay, when yeah. is the next riff? Am I still safe? You know, you should you should you know do it once and make sure that the company understands that this is now this is it basically. Hey last question on this topic from me. How did you personal deal with this, Robin? Because I heard in one of your podcasts and I read of your interviews that you also let's say are a very sensitive leader, right? I think you mentioned a few times that you sometimes have to cry even at home, right? Especially in these tough times. How did you personally deal with this situation, right? How how did you let let go of your energy? Or how did you spar with people? How did you let's say maintain yourself in the situation? Yeah, that's super difficult. <laughs> And indeed, you know, there, there, there were lots of times in my journey running inside it that I had to cry at home and you know, went back to my girlfriend and said, oh, this is not going anywhere. What am I doing? You know, so there's a lot of that, which is also logical, I would say. I mean, a lot of people have that also in regular jobs and then being a CEO or founder is even, you know, probably a, a more difficult job. So what I always said, you know, it's not about me, right? In the end, it's about the company. How can we, what is the best decision for the organization, right? How can we make the organization succeed? What, what would I do if I not be running this company? What would then be the best choice for the organization? If I would look at it from the outside, you know, what would I do, right? So their external perspectives obviously help, right? Just getting, you know, to know a few other CEOs or talk with your investors or, you know, people who are in the space, I think really, you know, sets some perspective for you, but you have to keep, you know, the company, the company's interest, you know, upfront. Yeah. So after that bump, big bump, <laughs> tears, then you had this small team and I guess like fast forward, you got to uh, 100 million ARR uh, in 2022. That journey, like how was that like hockey stick? Was it still with a bumpy ride? How did that happen? Yeah, so we had a we had a pretty uh, significant ride, I would say, after that strategy change. So, you know, we kept, we grew the company to 3 million AR. We did like a round of funding of about 6, 7 million. Then a year after we crashed. And then we said, okay, we need to come up with a better strategy. So what we did is we made a strategic bet to focus on one specific customer profile only. And for us, that was B2B SaaS companies. And we decided to focus on a trend, which was called customer success, right? That was this big thing going on, you know, a few years ago, everybody was investing in that. And we were like, okay, if that's growing, let's tie ourselves, you know, to that customer success trend. And these two choices basically, in the end, you know, led to, you know, super fast growth in, in two or three years. And in the end also led to the, to the sale to Gainside specifically. And what is super growth? What is it like? What is the, the monthly or the yearly growth? I'm curious. Yeah, definitely. So we so let's say, you know, in growing to about 10 million AR approximately at the time of acquisition, when we did the pivot basically or the strategy change, we were doing like 5 million AR. 
So it took us about seven years to get to 5 million. And then it took us three more years to get to 10 million. So there was a big acceleration, I would say, in the last three years before, before the exit. Um, and well, the exit was also still up for debate at that time. You know, that was not the intention, but because we were growing so rapidly, right? We were growing, you know, triple digit growth and we had lots of interest from the market, lots of customers signing up. We were hiring people. We had a lot of interest from venture capital funds. So it was, a, was actually a pretty good period after that, after that change. And how did you decide, Robin, to go for the B2B SaaS space, right? Because indeed, I recall that your company at that time was focusing, was let's say, a horizontal SaaS solution, right? So you're servicing telecom companies, energy companies, different kind of companies. And then you decided to go for SaaS. And I think those days, probably the SaaS companies were a very small chunk of your customer base, right? So you took also, let's say, a pretty big risk on that end to fully focus on a small part of the group. What made you decide, apart from, let's say, the market market dynamics that SaaS companies were growing and a lot of funding was put inside it. But what made you realize to focus on the small group of customers? Yeah, good question. So basically the reason, one of the biggest reason why we crashed basically as an organization and had to do the layoff and the restructure and all of these things is that we were selling to too many different segments, right? We were selling to energy, banks, financials, associations, software companies. And then we were also doing that in multiple countries. So basically we were just spread way too thin you know, in terms of roadmap efforts, in terms of sales efforts, in communication, in messaging, in our website, in everything, basically. So we had to make a choice and our choice was B2B SaaS. So how did we do that? Because, you know, from the $5 million approximately in AR, we only had like two or 300K in this B2B SaaS segment. So it was a tiny, tiny segment, you know, where we placed our bet on. So what did we do? We looked at that segment and said, okay, or we looked at our overall customer base and said, who are the customers who are getting most value from our products? Who are the customers who are least negotiate, negotiating in sales cycles? Who are the ones who are implementing you know, very fast or are implementing themselves almost? Who are the ones who understand our communication you know, immediately? Who are the ones who file the least support tickets because you know, they are just happy with how it goes? Who are the ones who are adding new stuff? who are the first ones to try out new features, who are the ones who are giving us feedback on product ideation or innovation requests, basically. So we basically looked at all different angles. You know, what is the ideal profile? What is the ideal customer, right? And, and this segment really stood out for that. And how much, so you mentioned this 250K was in revenue of AR, right? So it was, you didn't have a lot of customers there, so also not a lot of data. So I assume it's a lot of gut feeling also there for Robin. It's definitely a lot of gut feeling. Obviously, you know, you could look at data, but at that stage of the company, you know, it's also about, you know, your own gut feeling as a CEO founder, as a founding team and think about, okay, what is the next step in terms of strategy? Of course, we try to, you know, get as much data and talk to as much customers, but also prospects or, you know, friends or, you know, potential customers as much as possible. But in, in the end, it was a bet. And in fact, it was a pretty big bet and also a pretty rapid bet because I still remember the moment when we made this decision. I think it was like almost the last week of the year or so, like just before Christmas, I was in a strategy session with two of my advisors and I was like, we should just go do this. And then we went into Christmas and then the week after we had our all hands, our annual kickoff with the entire organization. And during Christmas, I completely rewrote the entire all hands covering this new strategy. And even my executive team was like, at the all ends, what is this guy doing? We kind of now, we have a different strategy. But I just felt this was, this was the right approach. This was the right direction uh, we should go. And of course, it was a bet. It turned out to be a good bet. But yeah, that, that's, that's, I think, you know, the power, of, of course, of a CEO, but also, you know, one of the few decisions you can actually make, uh, which have a big impact. And how did you get your executive team along with that, right? Because you rewrote that all hands into the full folks on B2B software. Then they heard it. Sorry, then they got it presented at the, at the all hands. How did you get them along in this, let's say, big vision, right? Because culture uh, is so important for you and also the team is so important for you. How, how did you do that? Yeah, I think the culture basically brought us to a point where they at least accepted it and said, okay, you know, let's try it out. You know, I still want to work here. I believe in you. It's a great organization. So, you know, I'm willing to try it out, but the real acceptance of the management team and the rest of the organization only came after the initial proof points. So culture can bring you so far in tough times, 
which is helpful. That's also why you need it. That's basically the baseline. But then the real proof, of course, needs to come from real results. You know, if you never achieve real results, then you can have a great culture, but in the end, you know, people will not stay or, or, or don't believe in it. And luckily for us, you know, after a few months, you know, we got some initial traction and we got some proof points and we had some initial sales. So that worked out to be, you know, good for us. But I still remember a lot of discussions internally. For example, you know, our one of our senior uh, people in marketing, we hired that person to focus on lead generation on one of the older segments. And basically in the second week or so, he came into our organization. He realized, oh, the completely the complete profile of the company changed. What am I doing here? So for him, it was really like, okay, I need to switch to a completely different market, totally different thing. I basically, you know, got myself into or subscribed to, but you know, he kind of accepted it because of the culture and the vibe and the energy. And of course, you know, a few months down the road because of the initial results. Cool. Question I'm curious about is uh, how much was like outside in versus inside out approach? Was it you in the room with the amount of data that you had? Or did you also really look into what other companies were doing within your space, maybe outside of your space? Did you travel to different hubs in Europe, maybe outside to validate your assumptions? Or was it all you within the data that you had? It was mainly us and the data so the exec team some of the advisors you know looking at things like you know who are the the most ideal customers to date and then it was just like what is our what is our north star what is the mission what is the vision where do we want to go towards and we were like okay customer success is probably growing b2b SaaS companies are growing the data shows some initial traction and then you just need to make a bet cool yeah so fast forward you had a few customers one of them was gain then we read in 2019 that you started a partnership together. How did that come along? Yeah, so basically the situation was that, you know, we were pivoting towards B2B SaaS. We were thinking about customer success and tying ourselves into that. So the first, one of the first things I did is I sent a message to the CEO of Gainside because they were the leader in customer success. And I said, hey, I see that you guys are organizing this user conference in London. I'm there, you know, would you be willing to meet up? I wasn't planning to go, but I figured, you know, I can jump on a plane. It's only like an hour, you know, let's, you know, if I get the opportunity to meet him, let's just do it. And he accepted. So I got 20 minutes. So I flew to London for a 20 minute meeting and I basically presented, you know, some high level slides on, you know, what is inside it? Where do we fit in this customer success landscape? This is where Gainside is. This is where we are. And I just painted that vision towards him. And he was like, okay, you know, that's, you know, interesting. And, you know, nothing really happened after that meeting, but it was the first point of contact, the first, you know, trust building con connection point, I would say, with him, which yeah, led to, you know, recurring cadence where, you know, every time, you know, he had a conference, I was, I was like, hey, let's meet up. So we gave each other updates basically, you know, let's say twice, twice a year or so for a period of two or three years. So that was really yeah. valuable. And this was when, like that conference in London? Yeah, so this was like, like say three years or so before the exit, three, four years before the exit. And if you're honest, did you by then have like a little light bulb, like, oh, they could be our future acquirers or not at all? Definitely. Of course. I mean, we made the choice specifically for B2B SaaS and, and customer success. We were like, okay, you know, this could be a potential, you know, company to in the end acquire, you know, inside it. We were not really busy with that or so. It was not like a deliberate strategy. You know, for me, it felt it was just intuition basically. But that's definitely, you know, and maybe jumping too fast, but that's definitely one of the learnings I had is that I would probably set up more strategic relationships earlier in the journey. So you at least have that existing, you know, connection, email address, phone number when you need it. Yeah. And you only went with them or you sent the same similar message to other of your favorite customers. So it was not betting on one horse, basically. Yeah, I did. I did like, like two or three other companies, approximately the same, although most were a little bit smaller. So it was not necessarily for like exit potential but more for, hey, let's become strategic partners, basically, in the ecosystem. And how did you do deal that, uh, Robert? Because we see that often, right? That companies are being bought by either clients or companies that they work with, at least as an existing relation, right? So that's, that's I think, a very smart way to do. How do you deal that, let's say, on a personal level, also during the discussions when, when you met him? Probably also at some time, the topics were raised, right? How do you deal with that sensitive, you start building a relation, and during the years that you got to know him? Yeah, so I think... The connection I had during those years was more from an 
intellectual point of view. So every time I just brought two or three slides with a vision, with a point of view, with what we were doing, but also how we saw the world, how we saw the industry, how we saw the ecosystem. So basically I became, you know, just a valuable sparring partner, you know, in, in the industry to him, right? I didn't say, hey, in the end, I want to sell my company to you, right? That that's that's not that's not the approach I took. I just wanted to build like this this relationship. And to be honest, you know, every meeting I had like two or three questions also for him, obviously, right? So I could understand the industry better, and and all these uh, things also helped me shape, you know, our strategy in a better way. And so you gave him some content, right, and also some some intellectual power, also, and he shared that also with you. Did you also share, let's say, early on, because that's a question that we get a lot, uh, numbers with him, also with uh, with uh, how how you at Insight were doing at that time, what were your growth, your MRR, customers, etc. Right? How transparent were you, especially in that early phase? I was I was actually pretty transparent, to be honest, and I'm but I'm probably also leaning towards more transparency versus less transparency, and that's also how I do it internally in my organization. So every all lands or quarterly or whatever, I just present, you know, the data, also the financial data as it is. And I just trust people that they, you know, that they treat that confidentially. And I did the same, you know, with, with, with Gainsight. So I just shared, you know, our progress, the amount of customers, you know, average deal size, approximately how, how big we were in terms of AR. And I've seen that they actually value that a lot yeah if you give openness you also get openness back right so probably he also shared numbers insights with you right that way 100 so he also shared with me you know how big they were right and how many customers they were acquiring and how how he saw the size of the industry for example and this is like super relevant data also for me to establish my own strategies basically so yeah that really helped i think in building that trust relationship with him so moving forward, like, uh, then you came to this point that the company was growing, customers coming in, you nailed down your ICP, you were ready for raising a series B that didn't happen because you decided to get acquired. Like, can you take us through like how that process was? It seems like almost being a psychopath doing like two different things without giving everybody the sense of transparency that I think is very close to who you like to work, how you like to work, like internally. How was that process for you? Definitely. So the situation was, you know, we were, you know, close to 10 million AR. Our new strategy was rapidly growing, right? We wanted to raise funding. We said, hey, let's let's move on to a next level. So we prepped data room, a pitch deck, you know, all the stuff you, you do, you know, if you want to raise capital. And at the same time, I also told gain scientists, look, you know, we're doing really well. We're going to raise capital. And then, and then they said, hey, you know, is it also an option maybe just to join forces basically, right? And for them, it was great timing because they just became the first unicorn in customer success. Big private equity firm basically invested in them about a year ago or so. They hired like this corporate development person. So inorganic growth. So M&A was basically part of their strategy, right? That's also part of the Vista equity strategy. So the timing for them was great. So basically in our board meeting, we decided, hey, our initial plan was to raise funding. We also have some interest from Gainside. Okay, let's just run this dual track then. And in the end, you know, became a very difficult decision because we had, you know, some good interest basically, you know, from venture capital firms. We had in the end also like concrete offer basically on the table, you know, from, from Gainside. And, you know, and we were in discussion with a few others. And in the end, we decided, you know, to go for the exit path, you know, various reasons, but it was, yeah, it was a complicated and, and interesting process. So Robin, when um, you decided to go with Gainsight, knowing that you also had multiple offers out there as an alternative, um, can you tell us more about the deal dynamics and what happened behind the scenes, the stuff that we never read at the TechCrunch? I'm um, really curious about that. I'm some juicy details here. Definitely. It's a very, very intense process. You know, you need to go all in. I was working almost 24 seven or so. You also get super nervous every single day because of the next step. So it's a, it's a really tough time. But let, let me tell you one anecdote. So in uh, the letter of intent, Gainsight Sanders, there were basically two numbers. Uh, one number was with the currency in euros and the other number was in the currency with dollars, right? And of course that number was the same at, the value was the same at time of closing because it was, you know, that specific day. However, during the process, the dollar and the euro currency diverging a lot, right? And at one point, you know, we noticed that. We were like, hey, actually, that's quite a big difference. 
And GameSight actually had to acknowledge, you know, the Euro number every week. So our point of view was, hey, you know, the Euro number is leading, right? But of course, at some point, they also realized it. And they were then all of a sudden communicating, you know, the dollar amount. So that was, that was you know, quite a big thing. And in the end, we had a meeting about that. And we were way off because in the end, you know, it was like one, two million gap or so. So, you know, it's a significant thing. You know, it's not 10K or so. And in the end, you know, they said, okay, then we're not going to do it. Right. So then we had like pencils down for about two or three weeks, which was a nerve wracking period. I was like, oh no, they're going to get back. They're going to come back. And, and they also probably thought the same. Um, so it was a super unproductive two or three weeks because it couldn't get anything done basically, because I was just waiting every, every, you know, single day, you know, for an email or an update. So in the end, you know, I decided to call the CEO and asked, Hey, you know, do you still want to do this deal? He was like, yeah, of course. I was like, yeah, same here. So then we got the lawyers and, and all the negotiation people back into the room again. And in the, in the end, you know, decided, you know, you know, in a situation where we both felt comfortable with, but it, you know, it added, you know, significantly overall to the, you know, to our, to our deal. So it was a, was a fun, but also a very nerve wracking uh, process. And also interesting to learn that, um, like as a person, you came back together and then like the lawyers came into the room. So it was, uh, again, I think the personal connection that helped driving this. In the end, uh, in the end, you know, deals get done between humans. Right. And especially deals, you know, like the size of this, you know, the CEO is just involved, right? They have to be. So build up that relationship with the CEO early in the process. So there's always an escalation path. There's always a text message you can send basically, or maybe just a quick call to make sure you feel comfortable again, or the other party is comfortable again. It's all about humans in the end. And it's also about, uh, it's also what I learned is that you have to walk from the table at one of the moment right it's uh, i think every deal has a moment that the parties walked uh, from the table and then indeed you have that personal relationship to reach out again right so that's i think a very good advice you hear that very often need that you always you always need a moment to go away basically however now i work at gainset so i now can look at all the data mm -hmm. and also the process how they experience it basically right and in the end they did cancel all the stuff basically internally, right? So they'd say, okay, this, this deal, you know, we've written this off. So it wasn't that, a power That's play. what they did. Yeah. So Corbett decided, okay, you know, we're going to go on to the next. So, and I was like, no, they're just playing games with me. But in fact, they did say, we're going to go. So yes, that relationship with the CEO, you know, got it back on track. But if I wouldn't have done that, you know, they wouldn't have continued. Yeah. Regarding the funding, you had a few preemptive term sheets also on the table, right? I think a few VCs said, you know, we're so interesting. We don't wait for the official... I say fundraising, we're going to do this round. And I understood from one of the, I think, podcasts that I listened that the valuations of these term sheets were also higher than the valuation eventually that Gainside bought, right? How, how did you, because that says also something about the valuation of the company, how made you, did you make that decision, right? To not go for that VC path with a higher valuation and probably a different outlook, but go in that case for that, for that exit, the exit option. And if you want to share numbers, that's like a very welcome. <laughs> I'm curious to know what these numbers are, but it's up to you how transparent you want to be. Yeah, I think I think you guys can guess probably uh, what 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 the valuation would be, and I, I'm happy to comment on that. So so it was a very in the end it was very difficult because exactly on the day we received the letter of intent from Gainside to be acquired, basically on that same day we also got like a term sheet for a valuation which was probably fifty percent higher. Right, so that was you know incredible gap so and for us it was super difficult because we were planning to go for the gainside route but of course i had you know a duty also to my board and shareholders to also you know present the other offer right so we had a we had a board call in 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 the weekend and i said okay you know what are we going to do in the end you know we decided to go for you know for selling the company different reasons you know the standard ones you know it was good for the team they had more you know stability a lot of people could go into leadership roles within Gainside. So I think it was, you know, good step for the team. It was a good step for the product. You know, it became one of the three core products for Gainside. So it was, you know, it was not that it was just a small add-on or they didn't pay attention. It was really strategic for them. And it was also not that you get, a, you get you know, the opportunity a lot that you can sell to a very nice company, right? A unicorn, which was growing, which has a big brand name. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, do I really want to sell my company to this 
super unknown brand, which is not growing, but it's like owned by private equity and we need to do M&A because else, you know, you know, we will, we will struggle or there's nothing or, so this was also just, it felt like, you know, like, like a good match. However, having said that, you know, truth be told, also for here, for your listeners, there is also other things, obviously. One of the things there is that, you know, we had, you know, a lot of legacy customers, right? Because we started our journey in a, in a lot of other different industries. So, you know, we had five, six million dollar in revenue from customers, which was not, which was not growing that segment. So they were, you know, that it was also holding us back basically in terms of overall growth profile. So although, you know, a lot of investors could really look beyond that, I could say, okay, I see that that's one portion, that's one segment of your company. The other segment is growing rapidly. It did, came, we did come to the conclusion that because of that, we couldn't necessarily raise from tier one US VC funds, right? So that, that was just not possible due to the overall growth profile. So we had, you know, quite a few term sheets, including, you know, high valuation term sheets, but it was mostly from investors where we felt like, okay, we're not 100% sure, or at least we started our ambition with going for a tier one US fund. When we came to the realization that that wasn't possible, that was one of the reasons, you know, why, you know, we didn't, we didn't go for the VC route. Another one was more on a personal level. You know, I was doing this for 10 years, right? And which is, you know, which is a long journey. And in hindsight, you know, if this would be, you know, a different company, which was, which was starting to sell to B2B like three years ago, I would have never sold, right? Because we were growing really rapidly and this was a new segment and there was lots of excitement, but we also had that other business, which was, which was not going so rapidly. Uh, so basically in that 10 year journey, we almost created two companies, you know, in one. And that was, that was quite a stretch also for me personally. So I was like, hey, maybe just this is this is just you know good timing. Mm-hmm. We did do a guess in terms of like the we think the acquisition price is. We have one of um, Johan's colleagues uh, do yeah. the math for us. May I ask one, one question before before we dive into that because I need to look it up at the moment. Is because the you got an offer from Gainsight, right? And you mentioned right on the same day you got let's say that term sheet in. Question one is, did you use that also, let's say, to renegotiate the offer to, with Insider? Because that's typically what I would do, right? Because you have another offer on the table, right? And secondly is, how did you, and please share again what you can share, how did you deal with, let's say, other players in the market, right? Because one thing that we learned as a VC is that you always want to have, let's say, multiple offers on the table to get, let's say, the exact value for the company what's supposed to be worth, right? If there's one term sheet, then it's not. How did you deal, let's say, with these two instances? Yeah. So... Uh, when we got the term sheet for that higher valuation, because we had some other term sheets were approximately the same valuation. So we got the higher valuation. We did not use it to renegotiate the deal with Gainside, also because we were already pretty far in the process, right? Because they did like a letter of intent with a certain valuation already some time ago. We declined that uh, also, be, you know, negotiation wise, obviously, but also because we thought, okay, this was not the right price. Then Gainside came back with a different updated letter of intent with a higher valuation. So we've already probably too far to now say, okay, do we really want to jeopardize this whole process by renegotiating renegotiating that deal? And in fact, the deal certainty Gainsight gave us because, you know, they are backed by, you know, large private equity firm. They have huge track record of doing, you know, these type of deals. They guaranteed us to do a deal, you know, in, in 90 days. It was... Uh, full cash deal, basically. So there was 100% certainty, you know, in any outcome for every uh, investor out there. So we also prioritized stability and, you know, reliability, I would say, versus going towards a path with a VC. We probably still needed to negotiate that term sheet and, and then you need to look at the terms underneath all of these deals, right? So so in the end, we, did, we didn't do it, but it was, again, was, was, was definitely a tough choice. Clear. Robin, on the, on the valuation. Onto the valuation bids. The first release announcing insider acquisition by Gainsight was made public in January 2022. However, the amount of the acquisition was not specified. You started the company in 2010, and fundraising-wise, it took some time, as you raised the 6 million Series A in July 2016 with Bentec, Hank, and Fortino Capital Partners, and then nothing until the acquisition in 2022. Pricing-wise, I couldn't find any indication on your website, so I had to make a few assumptions. 
also went on Feverbee to get a sense of the reviews of It's I Did and found some pricing insights. It stated, for instance, that pricing depends on the revenue of your customers and that if you have between one and three million revenues annually, then the pricing range is somewhere between thirty-five and $75,000 per year. It also stated that different pain models could be added, like a CRM integration for $12,000, for instance. Then I tried to define some assumptions about your customers. I found out in different articles that you had many large ones, like Sonos or TomTom, for instance, and that you grew a lot in 2020, adding 52 new customers to your portfolio with the 220% AR growth. I made the assumption then that two-thirds of your customers were enterprises with contract of $100,000 per year, with additional pen models of $15,000 per year. For the third remaining, I assumed a yearly contract value of $20,000 and additional models of $10,000. So assuming that you had 150 customers for 2021, that makes a revenue of $13 million. Now, if we look at the average revenue multiple in acquisition for that year, 2021 was the record year, if you remember correctly, in terms of number of transactions, fundraising sizes, and valuation. So according to Adventist Advisor, for instance, the average public SaaS market valuation was 19.5 times the revenue. The SCAL SaaS Capital Index, that focuses on private companies, is estimated to have a revenue multiple more, most about eight to 10 times for that year. So taking an assumption of time eight, it would mean $13 million revenue time eight, which would make a valuation of $104 million. So are we too high, too low, or very close? Well, you guys are really close. Uh, let me tell you a story about timing and strategy related to this. So let's, let's use some rounded numbers to make it easy to understand. So let's, you know, let's assume it's, it's sold for 100 million bucks, as you suggested, right? Let's assume we were doing approximately 10 million in AR. So 70% of the value created, so the valuation was created in the, in the last three years, right? Because of this, you know, the move to B2B SaaS companies, the focus on customer success. What we've also seen is that there was a different multiple paid on the old first, the new segment, right? So the older segment, which was not growing, had a multiple below 10 and the B2B SaaS business had a multiple above 10, right? And then the new business, therefore, contributed, you know, significantly, right? So going back to that choice, you know, you need to make as a CEO in terms of direction. If I did not make that choice, right, you know, let's then maybe it all be positive, you know, it would probably be worth half, right, this overall company. Because the value created in the last three years, we wouldn't have done that, basically, if we wouldn't have done that strategy change, right? So remember, you know, this is this is like a CEO choice. This is where CEOs can really make a difference, right? A single choice in terms of strategy is probably half of the valuation. Right? So that's one. And the other thing is about timing. So we sold indeed in in the first week of January 2020 or so. And of course, you know, it's a three months process or so, right? So if you compare, you know, the you know the M Cloud index or just you know general SaaS multiples. You know, compared to, you know, two years ago, you know, those multiples have decreased, right, with, let's say, 50% or so, right? So that's another 50%, you know, of your valuation, you know, and, you know, nobody, you know, wants to sell, you know, when everything is going well, right? All founders are like, no, we're growing, you know, we have ambition, you know, we, we're going to reach for the sky, we're unicorns, we're not going to sell. And everybody wants to sell when it's shitty, right? It's going well, let's try to sell this company against the highest possible multiple. Well, that's, not, that's just not how it works, right? So going back to the 100 million, which is pretty close, you know, this 100 million would be, you know, times 50%, times 50%, so 25 million without those two decisions, timing and strategy choice in terms of ICP, which is which is incredible if you realize yeah, it. Remarkable, yeah. Especially the value that you created, right, last year yeah. by these choices, yeah. Amazing story. And it also is, on a positive note, you know, there's a lot of CEOs and companies who are, you know, once in their lifetime are struggling, right? They're not growing as fast as they expected. They're not hitting their milestones. They're not hitting their budget, which was accepted by the VC. In the end, you know, I think this story also shows there's always a way, right? Just come up with a good strategy and there's always a path, you know, towards, towards higher valuations. Fully agree. Thanks for sharing that, Robin. Really great story. And then the day after, so you signed, it was an all cash offer. What did you do and how did it impact your life, if I may ask? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, the day itself was not like super special. In fact, my girlfriend was on a holiday to Bonaire with, with some friends. So she wasn't there. 
And it was also in the middle of Corona. So I was basically sitting in the office with two or three other folks from the company, exec team. And we were just waiting for the DocuSigns to come in. So once they came in, of course, we opened up a bottle of champagne, but it was like Friday or so. And we were going to introduce or to announce, sorry, to announce the entire acquisition the Monday after. So basically we, you know, we had a few glasses of champagne, but then we just started working again <laughs> because we need to prep for the communication on Monday. Yeah, it was not really, really a fancy moment that specific day. But then afterwards, like it is life changing. I think uh, if you do, I don't know how much ownership you still had at that point, but did it change you? Because you seem to be like a very conscious leader person. Did it change the way you live your life? Hundred percent, of course. Yeah, I know it's. I mean, it's, it's it's difficult because like not like like first world problems, right? You know, at one point, you know, you can get a lot of cash on your bank account and, and you can, you feel really happy with that. Right. Uh, which, which of course I am, but it's also, it also changes my, you know, my, my energy level at some point saying, Hey, you know, was this it basically? Right. Did I, did I make the move of my entire career now? Is it from now on getting only worse basically? Right. Uh, so although it's, it's great to be financially independent, it's also like, Hey, you know, running a company also brings a lot of energy and excitement and positivity and you're contributing to the world basically. And of course that, that also changed a bit, right? After, after that. So yeah, it's, it's a different life. It's, it's funny because you can also answer this question more on the monetary side, like, oh, and then I changed, I don't know, I bought a house, all that stuff. And for you, and we read somewhere that one of your core strengths is winner mentality. You're now saying like, is this a, like, is this the highest achievable goal? I think if I understand you correctly. So it's a really interesting um, perspective, I guess, like what this um, big milestone that the majority of uh, the people will never experience in their life change your perspective. Definitely. Don't get me wrong. I mean, my end goal was always to sell the company, you know, against the highest possible price because that's the game, right? That, that's that's why I signed up for it. That was my ambition. I like that. But in the end, it was never about the exact exact amount or the money or 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 things like that, right? I mean, the first thing I did is I bought a piano for my son, right? Because he was just starting with, with, with lessons, right? And I also feel sometimes it's difficult to talk about these things because, you know, again, you know, by norms of general public, you know, these are basically rich man's problems, right? Which is true, but doesn't necessarily mean that personally it's always easy because I really enjoyed the journey with Inside It, right? It was a really, really, really fun period of my life. And now I need to readjust and see, you know, where do I get my energy from? which is going well, so don't worry about it. But there was a period after the after the acquisition where I felt like, oh yeah, and what's next basically. And did you find a crew of other founders who experienced similar things? It's probably like a very like small WhatsApp group, but almost like peers, like, hey, how do we handle this? Definitely, yeah. And everybody is kind of in the same spot and people are thinking what to do. They're still gonna, you know, work at the company who acquired me. I'm gonna start something new. There's also high expectations then, yeah. right? If you want to start something new, a lot of people start, you know, investing, you know, I did that as well, you know, investing in startups or private equity funds and, but also trying to contribute to other founders. Right. So I started, you know, already way before the exit, you know, a peer group with other CEOs. So I tried to contribute more, you know, towards other founders who are maybe, you know, in their journey towards like 10 million or in their journey towards an exit. And that's also really gratifying. And last, last question for me, Robin. So, so the, the, the journey of Inside It took you 10 years. So if we now, let's say, fast forward over 10 years, where are you then? What are you doing? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. I have no freaking idea. <laughs> okay. Your, that's, your that's book is coming answer. out this month. I guess that's like a thing. I did a lot of cool stuff in the last two years. So I'm now, I decided to stay at Gainsight. Not because I had to, there was no earnout or it was not mandatory, but I was like, Hey, let's play champions league in SaaS. You know, it's, you know, it's a company doing a few hundred million in AR. I'm responsible for the overall strategy for M and A for strategic partnerships. You know, I just bought a company myself, right. Which is as part of my role, which is fun to be on the other side. I wrote a book, which is published by Wiley. It's on Amazon, I think this week. So I did lots of great stuff. I did a lot of investments, but 10 years from now, I don't know. I think the question for me is, uh, how long do I still want to be an operator, you know, in, in an organization? Do I want to start something new, you know, with, with a group of people again and, and really be excited about new, a new problem I, I, I can solve? 
Do I want to be more turning towards the investor side and, and, and helping other founders as an advisor, board member, stuff like that? So that's, that's something I need to figure out. I haven't spent any time off yet. I think after the acquisition, I could immediately continue to work at Gainsight. So I think the first step I should probably do is maybe take a few months off and, and, and see what comes next because I've been in this action to-do mode for the last 20 years or so. So that's probably the first step, but that's probably not going to take 10 years. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I guess my last question, because uh, you've had a very remarkable path and also selling to a U.S.-based company where you stayed, not because you had to, because you want to. So you've seen how companies there are being run. What is your wish for the Dutch ecosystem? Uh, because uh, 10 years, like a lot changed. I think your wish and what you like to contribute, if anything. Definitely. So now working for a US-based company, you know, in the executive team there, you know, things move really fast. They have high ambition, you know, they're you know spending a lot of cash fast to make sure that, you know, that they can grow. They place their bets. You know, data analytics is like super, super high standards. I think biggest thing I would say, if I look at, you know, what Gainside is doing, what I've done inside it, and if I look at the Dutch ecosystem, is maybe more ambition. I think founders should really strive for more. Don't settle for one, two, three million bucks in AR. No, 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 no. Go, go, go way further than that, right? Build that $10 million company, $50 million company, $100 million company, and really strive for excellence, right? Pay a lot of, spend a lot of time on performance management, you know, expect the best, drive a huge sense of urgency. That's also something I miss in the Netherlands sometimes. Like, no, oh, we can do it tomorrow. No, why, why not today, right? Time is moving very fast. More ambition. That's what I hope for the Dutch ecosystem. Yeah, cool. And now you can take a break. <laughs> Whatever you decide to do, if you take some time off and I think like uh, come back uh, because I think your experience is like extremely valuable to, uh, to the ecosystem. So uh, anything that we didn't ask that you still want to share or did we cover most of the, the key points of uh, at least this part of your journey? I mean, there's, there's so much I can tell also about, you know, the deal dynamics and... Uh, you know, and, and, and how, how such a negotiation process, you know, goes and, you know, some, some funny anecdotes around that. So happy to share with any founder who's in the same process, you know, can always connect with me and, you know, I can, I can help support, share some of my experiences because it's, you know, selling your company, it's not something you do a lot, right? Uh, so, you know, getting perspectives from others who've done that before, I think is, is, is really helpful. And buy your book, right? Which is available by Amazon this week. Buy my book. It's about building your own online uh, or your own customer community, I would say. And I think that's the, that's the next growth strategy for all of tech companies. So this is, this is definitely high on the list, I would say, on, uh, on your reading list. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Robert. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks, Robin. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Big Exit Show. We hope you enjoyed today. If so, please subscribe to our show on Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests that you want to see on the show, please send us a message to podcast at peak.capital. Thanks again for listening and hope you join us for the next episode.